Hey everyone, it's Jess. I wanted to apologize for my audio quality in this episode. It's not great. I have a brand new computer and a brand new setup and a brand new microphone, and I did not configure it correctly before we started. My bad, but bear with me because this is a great episode. You're going to love it. Thanks for listening. everyone, and welcome back to RPG R&D. I am one of your hosts, Jess Geyer. I'm one half of Wannabe Games, and I make tabletop role-playing games. And I'm here with my co-host, Craig Campbell. Hello, Craig. Hi, Jess. I'm Craig, and I am the owner of Nerdburger Games. Um, I also make tabletop RPGs and occasionally playing cards that are kind of themed for the games and a very limited amount of dice nowadays. Um, but you can only get those at conventions coming up this year because I didn't get enough made to put them on the store. Uh, and we are here with a guest, first time guest, um, Michael Ross. Hello. Say hello to everyone. Hello, everyone. I am Michael Ross. I am super excited to be here. I've had the pleasure of podcasting with Craig a couple times in the past. He's joined me. I've joined him. But this is the first time on this show. And now I can say that I'm also a tabletop game designer. Uh, that, now, whether it's a good game, that's yet to be seen, but I've done it. Uh, I'm also a longtime podcaster. I've been podcasting with the RPG Academy for almost 12 years now. And I run a small gaming convention with Craig has been to call it a catacon, which is a terrible name, but I love it uh, in Dayton, Ohio, November. So if you have the misfortune of being in Dayton, Ohio, November, look for me. <laughs> what a great sell. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Ohio right now, they've been having some issues, but I do yeah. really like the air, the like the air museum in, in Dayton. Yeah, it's very oh, cool. Though. Is it right, Patterson? Yes. Uh, well, we have two topics today, two that we're going to be discussing with Michael, uh, and our first topic, our DMing topic, is all about having narrative control, and because I currently have narrative control of the podcast, I am going to talk a little bit about narrative control as a GM, because I really like to share it. I like everyone else to do the hard work for me and take all of the glory that is my MO as a GM, uh, <laughs> but what what is handling like when we hand our narrative control off to our players what does that mean what does that mean for us that's the question right yeah. Yes. okay yeah um, I, I wasn't sure if I, <laughs> so again i'm very very excited to be here at all and uh, you know I, I promised craig and jess i wouldn't blather about my kickstarter the whole time but just really quickly i have a game that literally exists only because I love player narrative control so much. It's like one of my favorite things to do as a traditional like D&D GM. I love those moments when I can give my players narrative control and just kind of let them invent and create because it, it one is just fun. It's easier and it makes me a player because then now I have to react to what they had said, which I didn't know was coming. Um, so I kind of took that element and made an entire game out of it. That's Action 12 Cinema. I'll talk more about that at the end. But I absolutely love this just in theory and in practice. I'm a huge believer in it. Um, and I can talk about it for days, but I will not because I'm a guest on your podcast. <laughs> well, what is it like for you? Like when you, what's the difference for you for games where the players don't have a lot of narr narrative control and games that do? 
Well, I will put it into any game that I play. If I'm running it, you will, as a player, have narrative control, whether it's designed or not, just because I find it more fun as the GM to do that. And I think I think it's gotten more prevalent. I think it's becoming more, you know, more common in games, even like Pathfinder or First Edition D&D that aren't like baked into the system. And you've probably experienced this, and now I'm talking to you, the listener, um, when you've killed a monster. Like that's the most common time it's going to come up in a traditional RPG is, okay, Sarah, you killed the orc. What does it look like? And, you know, realistically, it's, it's, it's what I would say you're putting a box on it. Because no matter what Sarah says, as long as the orc is dead at the end of her description, it's really going to be okay. Like I, unless things get really wild, like you know, an avatar of their their god shows up and smites everyone. Well, that was a little outside the prompt there, Sarah. Sarah, it's you killed one orc. Tell me how, what that looks like. But you can describe it any way you want. You know, so mechanically, I swing, uh, swung, swung, I don't know. I, I stabbed it with a sword, right? And I did 1d8 <laughs> points of damage. The orc died. But when you tell me, describe it, I don't have to use the sword at all. I could have been blocking and the orc tripped over my foot and fell off a cliff. Or I kicked him into a barrel of ale and the barrels co- collapsed on top of him, trapping him. And then I walked over and stabbed it. So, you know, once the mechanics have decided the orc is dead, but I've told I can describe it however I want. I'm going to lean into that and I'm going to go wild and, and you know, wooly with it. And I want my players to feel the same exact way. I think that's probably the most common way that people have experienced it, even if they're in games that it's not traditionally used in. I, I like that you said that it's like staying inside of the prompt. And I think that when GMs are a little hesitant to release narrative control to their players, they're worried that they're going to step out of that prompt. In my experience, that has never happened except with very inexperienced and young players it has never happened with an adult and it's never happened with someone who's been playing role-playing games for a long time because we understand just because we've been playing the games or we've been let let me figure out that they're not going to ring on my doorbell again hold on whether they've been playing games for like a long time or it's just, you know, it's how we associate with each other as adults. We, we know the drill. We know right. what the expectations are. They're not going to bulldoze over everything. And if they do, that's a different problem. Right. hundred percent. That's a different problem. The narrative control wasn't the issue. It was a player issue and it could just be communication, understanding, expectation. You know, I very rarely have someone who's just, trying to mess up a game like I run at conventions and even there with strangers I can't think of the last time I had someone that I thought was just intentionally trying to like mess with me in some way just I I don't think most people do that maybe knock on wood it's not happened to me before but I don't I don't see it no and the beauty of of that simple prompt is that it can be, uh, you know, by the player or even with a little prompting and a little further prompting from the GM, it can be something that builds the world in some way too, beyond just like, well, you killed an orc. And then, you know, Sarah, our uh, heroic orc killer says, uh, and the orc curses me with its dying breath. And you say, well, what does that curse say? What does that curse sound like? What do they say? And And Sarah makes up the curse. And now you've established perhaps in your world that orcs go to their grave cursing their killers. And what does that mean for the, you know, the, the upcoming battle with the orc, uh, you know, the orc raiders that are that other problem. Um, and you can, uh, you know, build that into the world. And maybe that curse means something like if you get cursed enough, you know, as a GM, you might decide, well, if a 
particular character gets cursed enough times by an orc, like something bad happens to them or their family or their friends mm -hmm. or whoever. And you can, that's one of my favorite ways of, and we'll get to the designing part of it later, but you can incorporate this in GMing is to when, if there's parts of the world that aren't necessarily specifically spelled out, or maybe they are, and they're ripe for expansion um, in further development, like, you know, you can give that to the players because it allows the players then to feel like they own a little bit more of the world. It, uh, you know, if, if they're out to save the world or save the town or save the, you know, the family down the road or whatever, they, uh, they, they, there's a little more investment on their part. And I think that's one of the best, uh, side effects of, of giving any sort of narrative control to the players is that they suddenly feel a little bit, even if it's not conscious, like subconsciously, they feel a little more invested. Like this, this is a, a little more my world. I'm saving it. I'm, you know, defeating mm -hmm. the villain. I'm helping the people at the community center, whatever it is the game does. Right. right? Um, because I help to invent some of it. Yeah. I think, you know, it's pretty common as well in a lot of the games that I, I play in that, um, we ask our players to come to the table with a little bit of a backstory and, you know, your, your mileage may vary on how much or how little you want. But for me, usually I ask them to create three NPCs that they either know personally with their characters or just are known in the world. So maybe like a, a, a lover, a rival, a sibling, someone they could come to if they need help, someone they don't like, maybe some, again, that rival they've, they've been competing against, whether it be friendly rivalry or like deadly consequences. And then maybe just like a, a mob boss or somebody who's in the town that we're starting in that they might've heard about. And so like, you know, maybe five sessions in, I'm about to introduce this NPC who I want them to have a conflict with. Well, rather than just making someone up, I'm going to go to their backstory and go, oh, I haven't used this person yet. You know, Sarah or Jim or whoever said, yeah, they have this background. So I will use that. And I think that rewards that character or that player for creating this and helps build the world and helps make them feel invested. And player narrative control is the same thing. It's just in the moment. So rather than going to the backstory, if there isn't someone, I'll just say, okay, you know, you've said you want to go to the guards and see if you can get some information. Maybe you want to talk to the prisoner who was just arrested. Some one of you knows someone that works as a prison guard. Who is it? Who do who who here knows them and how do you know them? And I'll just ask them those types of questions. Again, I'm kind of putting what I call a box on. I'm giving them a little prompt. One of you are going to tell me that you know someone that works up the as the guard or the prison, and you're going to tell me how you know them. That doesn't become an I win button. Like no matter what they say, it's like, oh yeah, this is my best friend. We've been, you know, friends forever. They would do anything for me. Great. When you show up, they're not there today. So I don't have to let your, you know, if they, if again, I feel like someone's trying to manipulate things. It, it's not that hard as a DM to counter it. But to Craig's point, I think if you help create that NPC, you give them a name and you have a relationship with them. It's like you're birthing them into the world. You automatically have more investment in that character's actions in the story and if they become in danger because they helped you you're going to care more about them than the nameless npc i made up i i love letting my players decide like okay who's here who do you know like what what goes on here in the moment it does make, it requires a little bit more thinking on your feet and a little bit more comfort from you to just kind of go with what they're designing because the worst thing i think you can do is say who you one of you knows a guard here love the prompt nice nice and tight encourages the players to to feel like they have a stake and they have a say but the worst thing that you could then do is say no that doesn't work yep 100% if you ask the question you have to be willing to go with it yeah 
and then you have to go with it. You have to make that you have to make that rewarding for them. So they want to continue doing that. Um, it does definitely take a give and take. Um, and it really again, it you are giving up the control at this moment, which is, in my opinion, my philosophy as a game as a GM is a, always a good thing. You don't want to be the only person making the important decisions. And then everyone else is just like little pawns in your story. At mm -hmm. that point, just write a book. You want everyone to feel like they're contributing and feel like they are a welcome part of the story. Uh, so, But what about the players who then are like really hesitant? Like they, you give them the prompt and they... Uh, uh, I don't know. Um, or they just are having a hard time. Like, how can we encourage it from the player angle? So I, and that does happen, obviously. Um, I think by setting those, that prompt very tight and also starting, I think combat's a very easy entryway because they can always say, well, I stab it with my sword. You know, they don't have to be a very elaborate, but to your point, we have to then be encouraging. Go, oh, that's great. I love, I can, I can totally see that in my head. Even if it wasn't a great example, you pretend like it was the best example anyone has ever given you ever. Um, and then you use it in any way possible. If they can't come up with anything, then you offer a couple suggestions and say, well, like, what about this or this? I don't like to give them one because then it feels like I just said it. I'll say, well, you could do this or this one, for example. Do you have a preference? And then again, it's over time. I think they're going to lean into it. Maybe not. And maybe at a mixed table, I just don't ask them as much as I ask someone else because they don't feel comfortable that then becomes a conversation outside the game like hey just just so you know you're welcome anytime to jump in but i've noticed that you struggle a little bit i don't want to make you feel uncomfortable so if you want to jump in go for it but if i don't call in as much that's why just open communication at all times you sound like a teacher like those are things i hear <laughs> in my my teacher pd every time i talk about stuff about role-playing games like oh this reminds me of how i like treat my students in my well classroom. it is the rpg academy so we are a school in that regard <laughs> Um, and, you know, you can you can check with them, too, and, and open the like the suggestions can be like from the other players as well. Like there yep. if, you, if you've got somebody at the table that just loves coming up with neat ideas, because that's a great way to get like two options without you having to come up with two distinct options. You know, two different people are probably going to come up with two distinct options um, as long as, you know, everybody understands that, you know, OK, we're going to feed each other ideas and things. I do that all the time where I, mm -hmm. I, I, I go ahead like, can, you know, somebody's at a loss and I say, can I. Can we throw out, can, can I say, can we throw out suggestions? And then that opens it up to the whole table. I can throw a suggestion. Another player can throw a suggestion and they can be like, oh yeah, yeah, let, let's do that. And then maybe all it took, all it needed was just to get the ball rolling. They needed a starting point for the suggestion and they go with it and they, and they expound on it and they build mm -hmm. something more into it. There's the other side of the uh, hesitant player, I think is, which is not to say the player who offers too much because there's as long as it's not bogging the game down and, and making things less engaging or interesting for everybody, there's no really no such thing as too much, but there's the player who maybe is trying to get a little something out of it. Like they're mm -hmm. trying to see a little mechanical advantage or some kind of benefit that can be used in the moment. And if you've got players that are kind of doing that and this, and the game doesn't have that built in. Um, and I, I bring this up just because I've used it in some of my games, which is like, you can, it's very easy to adapt a point system where everybody has a few points that are like narrative points or story points or something like that. And somebody says, I want to try to do this thing. Well, you know, I'll use it as an example, just something that, that I've seen happen in Capers, which is a game I designed that has characters have moxie and they can spend moxie on a bunch of different things, including getting narrative things to happen. And the, 
the players, you know, they need, they need to get into this hotel up to the floor where the mob boss is staying. How are they, how are they going to get up there or figure out what floor they're on without, you know, cause the mob boss is keeping everything private. One of the players says, well, my cousin is one of the bellhops. Okay. Spend a moxie. You now have a contact in this hotel right now mm-hmm. who is on good terms with you right now, who can give you that information. And then they've, you know, what's your cousin's name? And you know, like how long have they been working there and what's their relationship like with you? Um, and that boom, 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 got a little bit of information. It builds the world. They get a mechanical benefit out of it, but they spend a resource to do it. And then as long as they don't overuse the the, the resource and they just kind of get one point's worth of um, benefit out of it, that's cool. If they want more, like, okay, well, you know, you, maybe the characters have to do something for the cousin, right. you know, tra- trade favors, or maybe you have them spend more points. Like the cousin will like sneak you in, like they'll put you, let you hide inside the the room service cart with the, you know, with the with the tablecloth draped over it. And they'll put one of you in there and they'll roll right. you right into the room as part of room service or something. Um, that might cost a little bit more in terms of like points to be spent or favors to be done or like the characters pay them off. <laughs> right. Or whatever, and, you know? And, you know, I've, I've heard this referenced in other places, uh, you know, the I know a guy rule, uh, whether yeah. it's a codified rule in the mechanics or just something you do at your table. I've been doing it for years and years. And, you know, it, for me, it refers back to Han Solo and Lando Calrissian, where it's like, I know a guy. And I just point out, did anyone watch that movie? The fact that Han knew Lando did not make their life better. In fact, it made it in a lot of ways worse. So just because you've invented this person that you know, it's going to drive the drama forward, but it's not an I win solution. Oh, well, because I know Lando, all our problems are solved. Oh, no. Now you have different problems. But yeah. you still you, have problems. You, now you have this guy you think you trust, but you should not. Right. He's, he solved your immediate problem of needing a place to land your ship. Congratulations. <laughs> yes. Welcome to a whole other pile of problems. Ex- absolutely. <laughs> uh, one thing I want to touch on uh, before we get too far, because this is absolutely one of my favorite things to do in a, like a D&D, more traditional RPG, is when I have characters do skill checks, not only do I sometimes ask them, what does it look like when you succeed? But my favorite thing to do is ask them what it looks like when they fail. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely love this. And I'll do a lot, like we do like a group check for like perception. And I have a a game that I run quite a lot at conventions. It's an introductory D&D module and it starts off with goblins. So I have everybody roll perception check and then whoever passes, I'm like, oh, you get this, just the smell reaches into your nose. It's this thick clawing smell of goblin. And I'll look at the person who failed and go, why didn't you smell that? That seems kind of weird to me. So what's going on with you? (laughs) And sometimes I'll be like, oh, you know, actually allergies uh, or maybe they were like picking flowers or they just weren't paying attention. Like it gives like a little bit of a character beat as to like why they didn't observe the thing that everything, everyone else was so easily able to observe. But I think skill check failures are a great opportunity as Craig mentioned earlier for like world and character development. So let's say again, we got people that are trying to climb a wall to get away from something that's chasing them. Everybody rolls their climb check. The barbarian fails. And as long as the barbarian is still on this side of the wall, they can narrate what failure looks like however they want. And like, you know, as a DM, I might go with the easy sort of jokey one, like you fall on your butt and you're landing there and you're in a cloud of dust. But maybe that barbarian character is like, well, I just didn't take enough time to look at the wall and I chose a bad avenue and I got halfway up the wall and I just, it would be physically impossible for me to, to get further. So I climb back down to face off against what I'm fighting. 
That's the same exact result. You failed a skill check. You're still on the side of the wall. But that's a vastly different way of telling that story and tells us a lot about the barbarian character. They're impulsive. They didn't take the opportunity. They didn't take the two seconds they needed to be successful. And now they're ready to turn around and fight. That's a lot better of an answer than you fall on your butt. <laughs> and then, you know, now roll initiative. So I love asking people, why did you fail that? Or what did failure look like? Again, is that tight prompt for a small narrative control? I love that because it also allows me as a player to do more of the role playing that I think is more fun for me and, and tell you reveal something about myself. That's like so fun to do. And it's as a GM, that's so fun to grab onto oh, yeah. and build off of uh, my favorite moments are the, are the moments where my players have given me this information and then I can use it for nefarious purposes. It also takes a little sting out of it. Like when you fail a yeah. check, that's not fun. But if you get to tell me what it looks like, you still have a little bit more agency in the situation. I think it just kind of goes down a little bit smoother. But absolutely, I mean, it's usually one of the most fun events at the table is when I'm going like, why did you fail that? Why did you fail that? Or even like in combat, if, you know, the, the third level fighter, there's a goblin's got one hit point left. And, and if we've taken three turns, we can't hit it. And I'm, we probably all experienced that where it's like, can this goblin just die? And, and now I would probably just hand wave and say, you've killed them all. But sometimes it's fun to say, why did you miss? Like you're a trained warrior. You've killed thousands of goblins. This one little goblin right there, what in the world is causing you to not be able to take this goblin out? And again, it lets them kind of maybe have a little fun in the moment about what the goblin did or a technique, or maybe they dropped their sword. Like it becomes a little moment that fleshes out the story in a fun way, I think. <laughs> this goblin spent the entire combat studying how we were moving and how we attacked. And like, is this goblin is particularly smart and like really knows, like has picked up on each of yeah. our individual fighting styles very quick. Oh no, <laughs> that, that, that goblin becomes a big bad. That, that, <laughs> exactly, goblin yes. become, that goblin gets recruited and becomes a sidekick. Yeah. Of that it, goblin it's the throng <laughs> of the goblin world. <laughs> I, I love, I love that in combat, especially I think everyone should try to incorporate that more. It does just make combat more, especially in a game. Like if you are playing D and D, Especially in a game like that, you want to make sure the players are all engaged within the combat. Uh, but it is kind of relatively low stakes. I just looked up to see if it had ever been published. I can't tell if it has, but I, I playtested a game. I don't want to say too much about it, um, but it was from Tim Devine, and it was called Chains at the moment. I don't know if it had ever been published. I was looking it up. So, Tim, if it was, sorry. It's called Chains, and it was great. It was fun because what the game allowed us to do was to, as players, feed prompts into the game for scenes. And an entire scene would come up of our own creation, our own setting. And it was a lot of fun to cycle through everybody else's scenes as we went through. And that is like a much higher stakes. Like you, you're allowing your players to not just build a character or describe what their own they're doing, but now they're building part of the world and what people are going to be doing in that world. Um, have you ever GM'd a game that was like that or given even more freedom in that way to a player? Not in a more traditional, like where there's a GM role, but just to quickly plug, you know, the game I'm working on action 12 cinema, it's a GMless game. And like most GMless games, that means technically everyone's the GM, but you just kind of take turns. So in that game, you know, there are, you can do pretty much anything you want. Like you, you describe what happens. It happens. The dice will determine if what happened actually helped or not. Uh, it's kind of similar to Wushu in some ways, if you're familiar with that. And um, so 
one of the only rules in the game is that you can't violate something someone else has already established as truth unless it's on purpose and with their permission. So if a character just says, you know, 13 uh, ninja warriors show up and we're engaged in battle, you can't just say, well, that didn't happen or now there's 37 or now there's only two because we've already established that world. So you have to yes and or sort of, I guess, technically no but wouldn't work here unless it's very because it's it's a game about bad movies so sometimes you can do it on purpose and then just throw in that it was a bad movie like you know night becomes day because we want the scene here or we lost the light there's like some meta jokes that you can throw in but for the most part whatever else someone says on their turn you have to roll with it on your turn going forward and try to make it make as much sense as you can so i have played that game quite a lot but i haven't played a lot of gmos games other than that so i don't have a huge experience outside of that particular game so do you think that GMs who are looking to give more player uh, narrative control, because the game I was talking about is also GM-less, so I think that there's a pattern there. Do you think players or GMs should play GM-less games to kind of get the feel of it? I do. Actually, I, that's one of the big secrets that I have learned from playing my game is that it's a GM machine. Like it, it will teach you how to be a GM. 100%. Or if you're already one, it will help you be a better one at improv. Because that's something we say on our podcast all the time. I'm like, I think to be a really good GM, you need to have some improv instincts. But it's hard to learn how to do that other than saying, Craig, you, you need to be better at improv. Well, okay. well, thanks, Michael. How do I do that? Well, do it or maybe take improv classes. Like those are the only two options I've ever given before. Is, but now I'm like, play GMless games. Because that is exactly what those games do, at least the ones I've played with is they're all just improv machines that we have universal prompts. We all add to the story. We all have to build on what other people did. And even if the game itself is a disaster in the moment, you're still learning how to improv. You're still learning how to take prompts and build off of them and try to roll them in and, and make a coherent narrative out of it. hundred percent GMless games are fantastic for GMs to learn to play. But even if you're playing D and D all the time, I'm a better DM at D and D because of playing GMless games. As, as uh, adjacent to that, if you are a, a GM who wants to try to introduce these, you know, more narrative control things to the players, um, one of the things you can do is be like, okay, we're going to play a one shot of this GMless game. And just don't tell them what, what you're doing is you're researching how different players at your table are going to react to having a, a heightened level of control over story elements and narrative. And so you'll pick up on like which ones like kind of really get into it and embrace it. One, which ones are maybe a little hesitant and might, mm -hmm. might need some prompts, more prompts and ideas from you. Um, and you can get a sense of that from that. Um, yeah. Jamless, like you said, like I've, I've heard people refer to them sometimes as GM full games mm -hmm. because everybody is kind of the GM at least some of the time. So, and there, and there are certain aspects of how certain GMless games function and how they trade that narrative control around that can be adapted to like we, we, I mentioned like a point based system that's very simple but you know you can look at GMless games and be like oh this like this I could take this relationship of how people trade off story stuff um, narrative stuff and just integrate it right into the game I'm playing because I mm -hmm. think it'll work fine with this system yeah I do want to throw just one little point of caution because I I love narrative games where people trade back and forth whether they're traditional or not but I have had some people tell me specifically they don't as a player they don't want to play in a game where the DM will just say so who do you know in this town or, or what's the name of the town or where is the next town because there's something about that verisimilitude of the world that they want to feel like they are exploring a world that is fully created whether it's purchased a you know module or something the GM is creating 
I would be terrible at both running and playing in those games. They're not for me. They're not for everyone. But you know your players better than I do. Make sure that you have players that want to do that because it's a lot more fun, in my opinion, if they do. But at the same time, I'm not going to say you should definitely do this if you have players who are like, no, we don't want that. So just one little word of caution there because we've been so positive because I think it's like almost universally positive. But there are groups out there that this is just not for them. Yeah, as we say on this podcast all the time, talk to your players that will solve all of your problems. <laughs> uh, it's it's the number one thing to do. Get to know what your player is like. It's also like another downside of this, like giving away narrative control for the players is that it is more work and it is a little bit more draining to have to like come up with things on the fly. You're, you have to be a little bit more like, I don't know, not necessarily more engaged because you can be perfectly engaged with a game where you don't have the narrative control. But it takes effort. It takes a creative effort, uh, which can mean you might need more breaks. You might need more downtime for people to think. You might need to end the game early sometimes and like make them smaller bite-sized sessions. But the upside for that is you as a GM, if you were used to having that cognitive load on you the entire time, now you have a little bit more energy to spend on the other portions of GMing. Including, yeah, including once you give up as the GM, you give up a little bit of some of that narrative control um, to the players. So you're not having to plan as much. You're not having to improvise as much. You are now potentially taking more notes because Mm -hmm. the players are generating things that you might wish to continue to use and utilize um, in that game later in the session. You want to have a note, be like, make sure, okay, they invented this thing. Make sure it comes back to haunt them at the end of the episode. Um, Or they invent something that you want to like, Ooh, that sparks something that we can turn into something down the road and keep track of those notes. And I'm terrible at that. I, I, I stuff, people come up with stuff and I forget about it. And I have to ask people at the next session. It's like, remember that thing that was really cool that you came up with? What was that again? So I do, because this is one of my biggest GMing tips. I love to tell people to do this. Record yourself. Mm -hmm. I know everyone and their family has a (laughs) podcast now. You don't have to do a podcast. Can if you want to. It's very easy to do, but, but you don't have to. But I cannot tell you how beneficial it is as a GM to listen back to your sessions because you will absolutely hear where you as a GM are doing well and where you're faulting. And then to Craig's point, the notes, you're like, oh, yeah, that is the name of the person I gave. That is the accent I tried to do because I can't do accents. Maybe you can. But it will help you capture all those little moments that maybe you didn't catch in the moment. Maybe even a player said something that you completely missed as a DM, didn't even hear it. But you're like, oh, God, that was great. And so now you can actually include it in your training for next time. So now not everyone has the equipment. Not everyone has the time or the inclination. But I have had multiple people tell me that they've recorded sessions just for their own edification. And it has been hugely beneficial to both them taking their notes and improving their skills. I agree with that. I always like to listen back to sessions too. Um, the long-term game I was in back when I lived in Michigan, we had all of our sessions recorded. And if I missed a session, I was able to kind of get myself caught back up and kind of still enjoy this narrative from more of like an audience perspective, which was really cool to do. Uh, but it's also part of that macro level of reacting to your players. That's what you want to do as a GM is react to their decisions. And also, if you're not acting as much, you're not putting that narrative, you're not doing all of the narrative on your own, you have more of the reaction time too. So react mm-hmm. in the moment and then react in the long term because you know what the heck you were doing and you can make reasonable and cool reactions on the next session, three sessions from now. 
little details that your players forgot and now you're bringing them back up and they will remember like oh my god you're a genius and then you're like yes thank you <laughs> throw flowers at me thank you exactly yes <laughs> oh boy well all of that said we, you know it using gming uh, as a way to kind of build and, and get players involved in narrative control sometimes you have a game that it's kind of built around that so like what about designing a game that embraces narrative control to some extent and that could be to a you know kind of very simple um extent very just it's like like the, the, here's here are things that players are encouraged to uh include and develop as part of like their input into the game um or games where like there's a significant you know all the way up to games where there's a significant amount of um player narrative control because it uh it makes for unique challenges in in you know I think in game design because there's a question of how to handle that if you're going to do with any sort of mechanic and how to give GMs advice on like the right way to, well, the the way that you as the game designer envision it to be Mm -hmm. happening for this game, not necessarily the right way people will twist that and turn it into how they want to do it, but like you will present a way to do it as the, as the designer. So there's a lot of different, a lot of different things to think about if you're going to incorporate that into your game design. Yeah, I think, you know, I keep using the word like traditional. I don't know if that's the correct word, but I think of like we have a, a GM who mostly loads the the plot, the story, the development. You have players who mostly react and there might be a little bit of mixture. But in a game like that, where there is built in player narrative control, it's usually built around a resource of some sort. Like you were talking about uh, the game earlier, like you have a point you can spend to create an asset or a person or a connection. But you have, you know, one point equals only so much benefit. You have to do other things, whether it's narratively, you know, the next session is now a heist that you got involved in because of that, or you have to spend more points. I think that's probably the most common way. Um, I think Cypher system has sort of like a reverse engineered thing where the players have a lot of narrative control, but if the GM's is like, no, that can't happen, they have to give you experience points type of a thing. There's like a... a a pay of, of like, I can't let you do that because of a narrative reason. So I'm going to give you a point that you can spend later for another narrative reason. Um, I played a D&D game once where I did kind of like what you were saying, Craig. I just gave everybody at the beginning of every session, everybody got a token. I said, this is just story token. You can turn it in at any point to just have something happen. Doesn't doesn't have to make sense. It can be a small thing. It can be a, a miss becomes a hit. Skill check successful. It can be the creation of an NPC. Just you have complete narrative control within, you know, some limits of anything you want to do. And it worked well. It got to be, usually what I find is that games that have more narrative control tend to end up silly. Like they just, because everything's yes ended and everything, you're almost always moving to more of a wacky story. Um, It's probably possible. And I'd love to play it sometime if you have suggestions, but I've never played in a GMless game or a, a game that has a lot of narrative control that it didn't, turn into be a silly time. I love silly times. I have no complaints about that. But if I wanted to play like a serious game, I think it would be harder to do. Just off the the game designer portion of my brain fired off when you said like everybody gets a token and you turn it in. Well, what if uh, you have a to- everybody, every player gets a token and when they do a narrative thing, they give the token to another player. Mm. Um, and when a player has more than one token, they can choose to g- turn in more than one to get like bigger mechanical benefit or whatever. But if you, if you give, if you pay more than one, those tokens go away. Yeah. Okay. So everybody can just kind of do narrative things that are just fun and, and everything and just keep passing tokens around. Um, or every so often somebody has got multiple tokens, they can turn it into a benefit that limits 
number of times that that's going to happen. So it becomes a resource that the players, players as a group think about, and you'll find yourself, you know, like, okay, let's load, let's, let's load Michael up on tokens. So that when we get to the big boss fight at the end, Michael can say something that's going to be like a huge boon to, uh, to that fight. Yeah, it basically becomes like a, a you you save it up and then you spend it in the last boss fight, which is fine. But we would just need to account for that in some way as the designer that that can't just be the I win button. But no. maybe you're fighting like a mecha giant robot and that allows the fight to be on equal footing, whether it be our own robot shows up or we're able to dismantle through technology into the mini robots we're fighting. Uh, got a Voltron on the brain for some reason. Uh, but like, yeah, I think that could absolutely work. You just, you would have to know that's almost guaranteed to be the the thought that someone comes up with is how do we gamify the narrative control mechanism? Yep. And you can, I will say this about game design all the time. You can control for that as much as possible, but if there's mechanics in the game, there will be players who are going to find ways to min-max those mechanics unless they're incredibly simple and there's just no way to do anything with it. And you can just say, well, like this is the, you know, you can state that this is the intention of the game. Um, This is the kind of the way we expect it to do. It is like when you spend multiple points, it's not going to be, like you said, uh, pressing the I win button, but it can be, here's a list of, 10 different possibilities for how that can go in in the GM advice section. And it's like you spend multiple points and it means, okay, less minions. Like when you go to fight the big boss, they have less, they have still have minions with them, but they have less. So it makes the fight a little easier, but the boss is still tough. The boss is still the boss. Right. Um, And so you can just make a list of things that are, give you a a sense of like, if you spend two tokens, this is what it is. If you spend three and maybe three is the max, you know, maybe you cap it with like a certain effect that you can only get through three and nobody ever gets up to having six tokens and now we win. Right, right, right. (laughs) And then you could have some way to like get them back. Like if you voluntarily take a loss or like a narrative consequence, like, you know, I have my ancestor's katana that i got from the highlands of scotland oh and now it's it's been stolen um and so i don't have it for this last battle so i get a token back because i intentionally go into this scene with less than full capacity that's a great way to offset that sort that sort of thing too is like it's it's a a cost reward like Mm -hmm. you get you get your chance to do the cool thing but you have to you know there's a balancing factor you you have to take some sort of penalty earlier Mm -hmm. um and and Real quick to think about whether or not they can take the cost and immediately spend for the reward or whether they have to like wait a scene because there's people will game that differently too. Like I'll take my, I'll, I'll take the penalty now and I'll, so that I bank this thing. I can't use it this in this encounter, but I can use it starting in the next encounter. Mm-hmm. I was going to suggest that. Yeah. I want to come back to something that Michael said in the first portion of the episode is that you didn't call it a GM less game. You called it a GM full game. And I think a part of game design that is really important is writing, like, how are your players, how are these readers who are going to play your game supposed to interact with the text? So instead of just giving them, presenting them with a bunch of rules, this is how this works. Like, you could write a section on, here is how, when you have narrative control, when you are doing this, here is how you should be doing or not doing things. You are responsible, like, really kind of laying out, like, this is what you are meant to do. And here's what you're meant not to do. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a to a do or do not list, but right. making sure that they, that you are giving them some sort of guide to be a GM and not just a player. Mm. When I think GM list game, I, I love, I love that term GM full game. When I think of a GM list game, I think, Oh, we're all players. 
but you're right. We are, in this case, we are all DMs. That is a different, that is a different interaction I'm going to have with text mm-hmm. going, coming from that perspective. All right. Well, to give credit where credit is due, that was Craig who actually said that part. Oh, was it? Oh, yeah. sorry. Well, I yeah. thought it was Michael. Sorry, to, yeah. sorry, Craig. To, to give credit, Michael brought up the idea that everybody's a GM. I'm the one who have, has heard and repeated the word GM full. Yeah. So it was a team effort. Right. Yay. High five. <laughs> but that is something that, I, that I'm currently struggling with in the, the current draft of my game is that even though it is, a, is it a GMless game or a GM full game, I still fully expect one person's going to buy the book, one person's going to read the book, and one person is going to explain the, the game to everyone else at the table. Like, I, I don't think four people are going to have four copies of the book. So you do still have a, we call him a facilitator. Uh, since it's a game about movies, we probably end up calling it the director. But basically, it's the person who is sort of leading the experience, though they don't actually have any additional power. It's just, they're the one I expect to be able to explain the rules to the people who just showed up to play the game that night. I think that's a really good point, is that not everyone is going to buy the game there is going to be an owner of the game and that there is going to be inevitably someone who knows the rules better or understands ttrpgs better than everybody else at the table and kind of takes on that role naturally i i like games that do have a facilitator when i personally play a gemless game like if i play fiasco and nobody knows what's going on we're in a, it's we're a, in fiasco. For a rough time we're in for a rough time <laughs> that's right how do you prevent that facilitator role from just becoming another GM? I know we're now we're like just talking about GM with games, but I'm yeah. interested in like, how do we, how do we make sure that we are constantly sharing the control that we have in the game? So the way I can, the way I did it with my game is, and I think it's pretty common for these types of games is it starts with a lot of setup. So the beginning of the game is a lot of D12 rolls because I love the D12. It's the best I ever, the pinnacle of the polyhedral. Um, so basically everybody rolls a bunch of D12s and that will lay out things like who the bad guy is, what the plot is. So there's a whole lot of the world that is established that's already there before any one player has their own turn to be narratively in control. Um, but then you still have whoever goes first has a lot of power because they get to say, okay, like, for example, one of the obstacles in my game is quicksand because why, you know, you got to have quicksand, right? But in one of the games we played, it didn't really make sense for actual like half water, half sand quicksand. So we interpreted quicksand as we were inside a skyscraper that was being shrunk and we had to get out before it got so small that it killed all of us. So that's how we decided that quicksand would be, you know, in our game. And whoever went first is the one who actually kind of made that decision. So you still have all these prompts, but the first person establishes everything that's true and the next person builds off of it. Mm-hmm. So you still just gonna be, need to make sure that whoever goes first is willing to play nicely and the people who follow will also play with their toys nicely type of a thing. And part of that, again, goes back to talking to your players and saying, hey, we're playing this game tonight. It's a GMless game. This is what that means. Here's how it should work. And I'm still struggling. Like, I don't, know that I've done a good job. That's the thing I'm still trying to figure out how to do that well, but that's my current process. For die laughing, the 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 structure of the game is set up in such a way that the GM, who is the GM and what their responsibilities are, is defined by scene. So like every every scene there's a you have like Jess for this scene your character is the lead character. All this all the story the, the scene revolves around your character in some way. I'm the player to your right. I'm the director. I play the GM. I set the scene. I say, you know, I play NPCs, all that sort of stuff. And then when, as we, and then at the next scene, everything passes to the left and Michael becomes 
the lead player and Jess becomes the director. So like the, it, it, it shares like that's, that's a game, just a, a type of a game that just shares that specific thing around very specific, you know, very uh, structured in a very structured way. Like it, rather than, you know, forcing one person to suddenly become the GM long-term. Now, usually when I run it for, especially like for people that are new, However, everybody's sitting at the table. The person to my left becomes the lead player for the first scene because that way I'm the director, I'm the facilitator, I'm the GM for the first scene, so they can see what that looks like. Yep. And then it gets passed to the next person. Yeah, I played you a could, game last. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say you could combine that with tokens, even like what we were mm-hmm. talking about earlier, and that way there's like some sort of flow, some directional flow of where these tokens are being spent and paid to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if there there could be a GM or the, you know, director or facilitator or whatever you want to call it, token that floats around in play. And you could play with a group of six people. And maybe there's one person in the group that doesn't want to play that role. They just want to play their character. Well, you never pass the token to them. Right. You skip them. Uh, I was going to say, I played a game last night on a stream called The Last Hand, which is a GMless game. It's currently on Kickstarter now. I'm not affiliated with it at all, but it was really fun. But it's like a horror version of Fiasco, but it uses playing cards. Uh, and it's like a poker mechanic. So you have to like use your cards as a resource to affect the cards in the center of the table and blah, blah, blah. And it has a dealer mechanic similar to that. Whoever is the one physically dealing out the cards at a physical table is the dealer. They start... The initial scene, they're responsible for laying the groundwork of what the world, you know, is, but everyone gets to contribute. And once that is over, they pass the the deck to the next player. They become the dealer. They add new cards and those cards add things to the scene. So similar to how you do it in Die Laugh and it's just with physical black poker cards. Every time I talk about like, like cards and then tokens too, it just reminds me of uh, Deadlands. Mm-hmm. And like how like you could you could steal a very similar mechanic from their poker chips to to make your GMless game run smoothly or any game where you are giving narrative control to the players more smooth. It works nicely with a point system where you have a currency. The currency can be spent on different things. So that's that's something you can approach too. Is like I've got this point system. In, designed into my game and people can use people can spend points to do narrative control stuff but they can also spend points to gain a bonus to this or that or to prevent this or that or whatever um so that for those players that aren't interested in the narrative kind of stuff they've still got something to do with their points right so you have like the mechanics like if i'm in combat i'm using my sword against you with your sword i could spend a point to say that you don't have your sword that doesn't mean i, I win the battle but in the conflict i now have a mechanical advantage or you know someone's got a gun that they ran out of bullets so now they don't have their gun so you could use those points to affect the narrative but you still have to have a mechanical resolution to the conflict that is like the the narrative resolution to anything um is something that you could also just plan right in for your game like you can say like whoever rolled it is the one who who says it like this this mm-hmm. is where you have the points of control like even just for a little bit like if you rolled it, you get to describe it. Just putting that text in there can make a world of difference because you're mm-hmm. giving permission to your players to do whatever instead of this implicit, like, here's how the system's built. Implicitly, there's going to be a lot of sharing, but explicitly stating something. Gosh, now now I'm like, ah, look, it says so right here. I'm allowed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but people need that. Some people really do need that. An explicit invitation. Yeah, I've had that discussion with game designers where they say, like, we don't, as game designers, we don't need to give the give the players or give the reader permission to do something. Yeah, we kind of do. Occasionally, mm-hmm. we do. Not all the time. Doesn't need to be constant. But you know, I I 
I usually just do it with like, you know, if there's not a rule for it or you want to do it differently, like come up with something, come to consensus and right. do it and be consistent. You know, like I tell people that that's perfectly acceptable in this game. Right. I, they I might the, not need it, but it, you have right. to. But for <laughs> the people, who, for the people who do need it. I, I think the, appreciate the, that. the way I would clarify that is that you, you don't necessarily need to give them explicit permission to do something the game is designed to do, but you do for what it's not designed to do. Mm. So the sort of thing, like if, like it's outside the scope of what you expect them to do. There should be something like, this is what happens when and if, but if the entire book is telling you what you can do, I think you have told them what they can do. I don't know. I'm, I may be cross-wiring what you're saying there. Yeah, no, it, to, to, to the extent of, of what you're saying, I understand what you mean. And yes, that is exactly true, but it's also, it's not unheard of to just include a brief sentence or two that says, yeah, you can house rule this. Mm. Like you can, the game explicitly does this this way, but you can change that. That's okay. Yeah. Nothing, nothing, nothing you do is going to break the game. <laughs> I have written in a games. I'm not your boss. <laughs> yeah. What I, what I always tell people when people ask me, like, usually this is what like happens in person at conventions or somebody says, well, we, you know, we, we changed this to that. And I was like, yeah, oh, that's cool. After you bought, you bought the game. It's yours yep. now. I don't know yep. that. I don't own that book anymore. You can cross stuff out. You can write new stuff in. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Same thing with like, uh, like when, when people run my games at conventions or they run them for their own friends. Like, yeah, did they have fun? I don't care as long as they had fun. If you made the game unfun for them, I do care because this yep. is my game. But yeah, have fun with it. Just if, if you are if you are making a decision that is right for your table, for your group, for you in that moment, it's a it's a game. It's not uh it's not a governmental policy. <laughs> yeah. And if it's a governmental policy, you should question it anyway. Probably, yes. 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 <laughs> That's totally what I playing, read about. I'm totally playing to my audience on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I would have been floored. I would have been floored if Jess would have disagreed with me on that point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're right. That's like the theme of both of my major publications now. So <laughs> Questioning authority. Yeah. <laughs> Um, any, any, <laughs> as we're wrapping up here, are there any thoughts on like how we can either like, cause we can go back from one or two about being a GM. Cause of course there's a lot of overlap, um, in a lot of ways, GMs end up being sort of designer or as a game designer, any final thoughts on this narrative control for the players? So, well, I, I would say just kind of in, in general for both is play more games. Now, um, as someone who runs a small gaming convention. Yeah, go to conventions because like I know people who are like, you know, I play a campaign D&D or play Pathfinder, my game, my, my players, they don't want to play another game. Well, don't make them play another game, but take a weekend, go to Gen Con or go to a Catacon or go somewhere else and play four or five games that are not the game that you normally play. And I guarantee you will learn something from them, good or bad. You may find something that happens. You're like, oh, that's terrible. I never want to make sure I don't do that in my games. You still learn something. Uh, but you probably will learn things that, oh, I can steal that rule or I can steal that technique, whether it's the GM or the game or a mixture of both. I am such a better GM now because of other games that I have played and just other GMs I have played with cannot express how important I think that is, is to diversify. Don't make your players do it if they don't want to. I get it. There are groups that don't want to. But as the DM... I think that's part of your job is go out and explore and play new games. Just another final thought on the, on designing for narrative control. If it's, if it's anything other than just like encouraging players to do it, 
because that's just like, you know, you just, well, encourage them. What level do you encourage them to? That's kind of up to you. But if, if there's anything mechanical, if there's points being spent or you have to, you know, take a penalty to gain the ability to control narrative or anything like that. Um, this is one of those thing, one of those um, parts of game design that benefits perhaps more from playtesting than some other aspects of game design because you can't math it out. You can't map it because it's not like you can say you're going to do this and it's going to give you a plus two. And that's the math, you know, like it, it's, you can, cause you can figure some stuff out with the math, but when it, when it becomes like, as soon as you throw players in saying, I'm going to use this little game mechanic thing, that's going to allow me to inject something into this game that could completely change how this is all going to go. And it has no math or no rules involved. It's just, I say this thing and now it happens. That's, that's something that you want to kind of test out. Like where are the limitations? What's mm-hmm. the upper limit of, for how powerful an ability like that should be? What kind of benefit you should get? You know, the, if you're spending, pushing tokens around the table, like how many and, you know, is one per player, right? Is, is mm-hmm. it better to just have a couple, like, you know, can you add more to the table as you play? You know, like there's all sorts of different things you can do and you want to try those, try those things out different ways. And it'll become pretty quickly when something really doesn't work, that becomes very apparent very quickly, but mm-hmm. there might be a couple of, couple of ways that like, there's just nuances that you want to explore and you can just be like, okay, well, and then there comes the, there comes the point where as the designer, you're like, okay, no clear winner. Just pick one. Pick one. And hope that that pick does your the favorite. Job. Yeah, it's your game. You pick a favorite. Yeah. Michael, thank you for joining us. I had lovely time. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us about uh, this game that you're designing. Happy to do so. So, Action Twelve Cinema is my love letter to three of my favorite things in the world: bad but fun action movies, the D12, again the best eye, the pinnacle, the polyhedral, and collaborative <laughs> storytelling games. So, absolutely, why I was so thrilled to be here today. And it's my version of a game that lets you roll a bunch of D12s because I truly think that's fun to roll. Uh, It's very silly by design. It works on meta levels because in some cases you're the player playing the character. In some places you're the actor playing the character. You might be the director talking to the actor. You might be the sound editor. Uh, Things happen in the game. It's all at a meta level and it's all player narrative control. I literally took that moment where the DM says, Michael, you killed the orc. What does it look like? And I made that the entire game. That is literally everything that happens in the game. You roll a bunch of D12s and it gives you the outline of the movie you're going to play. And then it goes into scenes and you can describe whatever you want. Absolutely 100% whatever you say happens, happens. The dice will determine if what happened actually helps propel the scene towards the end of of that act. It works in a very loose three-act structure, uh, very improv heavy, very just, you know, narrative wackadoo stuff uh so if you like bad action movies you like d12s and you like collaborative storytelling please come check out the game it should be on kickstarter now uh it's gonna be running for like 21 days it's a little bit shorter than than regular but uh, i'd love for people to check it out uh it's been played on a couple of streams i think i've got some stuff on my channel i'm happy to answer questions so if anybody wants to find me they can find me at the rpg academy pretty much anywhere and you got so excited about your game that i don't <laughs> think that you said what it's called i said it's action 12 cinema and so that's where I, we can find it on Kickstarter. Yeah. I grew up watching these movie blocks in like the 80s, like WGN, TNT, TBS. And they always had these like Saturday afternoon, like four action movies in a row and plus the D12. So that's kind of where the name came from. Awesome. Well, thanks again for joining us. Uh, you can find me and my stuff at wannabegames.com or on itch or drive through RPG under the same name. 
Uh, you can also find me on Twitter and Tumblr at, at Joska or on TikTok at Jess is awful. <laughs> um, I'm Nerdburger Craig on Twitter, and you can find my games at um, Drive Through RPG. The website is um, NerdburgerGames.com, and Die Laughing Two Colin Die Laughinger is coming soon to uh, uh, Backer Kit crowdfunding on March seventh. Woohoo! Yay! Thank you to our opening and closing theme song, which is Avil by Steph Sachs, licensed under Creative Commons. And thank all of you for listening, and we'll see you back here next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.